Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. In our last episode, we examined the dramatic struggle between the prospective heirs of Andrea Massina Falona, culminating in one of his sons kidnapping the king of Imerina for several years before he was eventually freed. Before he passed away, Andrea Massina Falona designated one of his sons, the Prince of Ambohimanga, to serve as his heir to the kingdom. However, as we'll soon see, things did not go according to plan. Political divisions will beget destructive fighting, civil war, and the near destruction of Imerina as a political entity altogether. Season 4, Episode 12, The Crises of the 18th Century, Part 2, The Merina Civil Wars. Despite the tumultuous ending of his rule, the last year of Andrea Massina Falona's reign over Imerina seemed to be concluding on a happy note. The king had escaped his imprisonment, captured his treacherous son, the prince of Ambohitra Trimo, and finally resolved his years-long struggle to designate an heir. In one of his last statements made before his demise, Andrea Massina Falona declared that the prince of Ambohimanga, the young man Andrea Andrasica, would be his next king. The seemingly optimistic ending, though, was deceiving, to say the least. While Andrea Andrasica now held the official title of King of Imerina, he held little real power outside of his own fief to back it up. Sure, his two remaining brothers had pledged to serve him as vassals, but pledges are just words and not necessarily a representation of material power. The bond of word would not hold, and devastation followed. According to the writings of later Merina historian and politician Raumbana, this era was the first instance of war and bloodshed caused by Hofa people against one another. These terrific civil wars ravaged Imerina and caused the deaths and slavery of thousands and thousands of her miserable people. Despite the infamy of this period in Malgasi history, or perhaps because of it, surprisingly little about these upcoming civil wars can be found in Merina historical records including what was the immediate cause that made the relationship between the three brothers fall apart. The resulting war was itself confusing, multifaceted, and involved perpetually shifting series of alliances. One 19th century Jesuit missionary, who collected interviews from Marina people about their kingdom's history, would later describe the accounts they heard of the Civil War as a maze of fratricidal battles between sons and grandsons, a statement which sums up the conflict pretty well. So obscure is the history of this conflict that it's not super clear what even incited the conflict in the first place, since most Marina accounts simply sum up the causes of the conflict as unending discord among the princes. However, the answers may lie in the actions of Andrea Andrasica himself. Almost immediately upon taking up his new position as king of Imerina, it became increasingly obvious to Andrea Andrasica that, despite the oaths of his brothers to respect his sovereignty, in reality, he possessed no true ability to regulate or exploit lands outside of his own fief, the northeastern territory surrounding his personal capital at Ambohimanga. So, despite technically being crowned king of Imerina, he was really only king of its northernmost territories. And even then, local demes often controlled a great deal of power in the countryside. So, furthermore in this reality he really only controlled a small area surrounding Ambohimanga itself. This reality was confirmed when Andre Andrasaka attempted to extract tax payments from his brothers. The eldest of the three remaining royal brothers, 
who ruled from a fief surrounding the key lands of Antananarivo and Ambohitrabivie, still harbored lingering resentment about his father's choice of heir. After all, he had been the eldest son, the long-assumed heir apparent, so he wasn't going to let his younger brother just swoop in and start acting like his superior. He refused every single request that his brother made for tax payments. In how they acted, it seems like the brothers had completely different interpretations of the actual significance of the oaths they made to their father. The prince of Antanarifu, it seemed, viewed the oath to cooperate with his brother as essentially allying with his brother as an equal. Each brother would have sovereignty in their own fief, himself included. They would then cooperate in matters of defense and infrastructure, serving as close but still independent allies. More like Andrea Massina Falona's original plan of a Merina confederation to replace the kingdom. Andrea Andrasica, on the other hand, viewed his brother's oath to cooperate as, basically, an oath of submission. Their father, after all, had named him heir, so they should cooperate with his demands for tax payments. As his brothers continued to refute his demands for taxes and labor corvées, Andrea Andrasica became increasingly aggravated. After years of unproductive bickering, the prince of Ambohimanga decided that the only way to guarantee his brother's loyalty was through warfare. The prince called his subject lords to assemble at a dried-out streambed outside of the Rofa of Ambohimanga. There he demanded that each of his subjects provide him with an oath of allegiance, a demand which most obliged. Andrea Andrasaka, with his oath secured, launched into a dramatic presentation. With his subjects prostrated before him, Andrea Andrasica called a group of servants to begin planting sterile rice husks in the dried-out ground of the riverbed, while one of the servants handed him a sharpened lance. Andrea Andrasica then dramatically plunged the lance into the ground and declared, I have confidence in those who have taken the oath. Let he who betrays the word of Andrea Massina Falona no longer have posterity, and may he have the fate of these sterile grains. Let it dry up, like this dried-up spring. But, whoever stays true to the king, may he be blessed, may he have posterity. The prince then lifted a jug of cane wine into the air. Whoever betrays their oath to Andrea Andrasaka may die of this sacred drink. The wine was then poured into the mouths of his assembled subjects one by one, acting as a final confirmation of their oath of loyalty. With the loyalty of his own subjects secured with this new series of oaths, Andrea Andrasica could now begin his true goal, a war to reunite Imerina. After gradually and secretly raising an army of levies, the prince of Ambohimanga launched a surprise attack on his unprepared brothers. The prince of Antananarifu, unprepared and taken aback by the sudden invasion from the northeast, was slow to mount a true defense. Andrea Andrasica and his armies captured their first major objective, the city of Ambohitrabibie. This city was not only symbolically important to capture, as the historic home of the great ancestral king Ralambu, but was also tactically important, as its fortified Rofa was the only major fortification that stood between Ambohimanga and Antanarifu. In a sense, by capturing the city, Andrea Andrasaka was about halfway towards winning the war. The prince of Antanarifu, on the other hand, called for his brother in Alasora to aid him. The two brothers tried to scrape together a strong militia, but it was too little too late. Andrea Andrasaka's army, long since organized and trained in secret, easily dispatched his brother's cobbled-together force. 
the armies of the Northeast continued to advance unimpeded, eventually even reaching so far south as to capture the city of Alasora. With Alasora now under Andre Andrasaka's control, and his brother captured as a prisoner, the authority of the southern fiefdom created by Andrea Massina Falona shattered. Southern Imerina instead balkanized into several localized village states run by the most powerful Deme that happened to live there. In spite of the prince's seemingly unstoppable expansion, the armies of Andrea Andrasaka were eventually stretched to their limit. While his army had seemed unstoppable during the war, food supplies were starting to run low, and many of his levy's terms of service were about to run out. For that reason, the idea of assaulting and capturing the fortified city of Antanarifu was outside the realm of possibility. Instead, the king consolidated the victories he had achieved in often brutal fashion. The Andriana who had sided with his brothers were executed, and in their place, new, loyal Andriana were given fiefs of their own to rule over in the newly incorporated lands. Meanwhile, lower-level Hofa nobles who had sided with the brothers were given a second chance to change their allegiance, being coerced at either spear point or gunpoint into taking an oath of allegiance to Andrian Trasica. Those who accepted were allowed to maintain their status as important members of local demes, while those who refused were dismembered and fed to dogs. You can imagine which choice the majority opted for. While Andre Andrasaka had managed to secure his own control over much of the highlands through coercion and intimidation, he soon struggled with a similar problem to his father, the issue of succession. But unlike Andrea Massina Falona, who had struggled with picking from among many viable heirs, Andrea Andrasaka had the opposite problem. Now, there's a bit of discrepancy when it comes to versions of this story, both of which are relayed in the Tantara. In one version of events, Andrea Andrasaka and his queen were perfectly capable of producing children together, and even had eight children. However, all eight of these kids were daughters, and therefore not considered viable for the throne. Another, alternative retelling, claims that they were simply unable to have kids at all. Regardless, the king and queen of northeastern Imerina instead had to take an alternative approach when it came to having a son. So, fun fact about Andrea Andrasica, which I just think is adorable, is that this tough-as-nails, deadly, murderous warlord had an unusual soft spot for donkeys, kind of like Mike Tyson and his pigeons. The king kept four pet donkeys in Analamanga and basically treated the animals like his babies. Andrea Andrasica figured that since he could handle keeping four donkeys as pets, that four sons would be the ideal number for him. So he reached out to several of his close relatives that lived around his kingdom, like, Hey, you got any surplus kids I can take? A few families responded, and within a couple years, the king had adopted four new sons. Naturally, he named all four of them after his beloved Burros. Except, wait, did I say he adopted four sons? Well, that's wrong. Andrea Andrasica didn't really like any of his new sons. So instead, he adopted a fifth, with the last son being his nephew. Not having a fifth donkey to name his nephew-turned-son after, he decided to just call him a hilariously generic name, Rakoto Mafo, with Mafo meaning light-skinned, and Rakoto meaning, like, dude or guy or person. So basically, Andrea Andrasica named his last adopted son, Light-skinned Guy. Despite his unassuming name, Rakoto Mafo quickly proved himself to be the strongest natural leader from among the children. While his brothers were each given a small token fief to rule over, Andrea Andrasaka, hoping to avoid his father's heir, made no qualms about unequivocally declaring Rakoto Mafo as his heir apparent. And when Andrea Andrasaka shockingly died not long after the adoption of his sons, 
Rakoto Mafo took his place. Upon becoming king, he did receive a new royal name, Andrian Bello Massina, but I think I've peppered you with enough names starting with Andrea this season that I'm just going to keep calling him Rakoto Mafo. Though keep in mind that nobody actually called him that after he rose to power, I just love the name. As you would expect, Rakoto Mafo's first and primary objective as king was to finish what his father had started, and reunite the Marina kingdom under his rule. This would prove to be no easy task, though. While his father had succeeded in retaking a great deal of territory, this had mostly come from the initiative of a sneak attack, and given the overt hostility between the different Marina kingdoms that followed this sneak attack, Rakoto Mafo's enemies would surely be prepared for a similar attack in the future. In terms of actual military strength, though, neither Rakoto Mafo nor his enemies in Antananarifu could boast a significant advantage. In order to break the stalemate, Rakoto Mafo made a decision he would come to regret. He called for assistance from the Sakalav. In an arrangement which provided the Sakalav with tribute payments of rice and slaves, the armies of Amboimanga were bolstered by a contingent of Sakalav soldiers, likely from the northernmost Sakalav kingdom of Boigny. With these Sakalav soldiers by his side, Rakoto Mafo and his army advanced towards Antanarifu. Since the capture of Ambui Trabibie by his father, however, the southern Marina kingdom was more than prepared for the invaders. In what had previously been a small village, the prince of Antanarifu had constructed a large fortified settlement called Ambohitrasa. The town was protected by impressive ditches and sloping earthworks, with a considerable garrison behind it ready for the fight. At first, the forces of Amboimanga attempted to climb the ditch and assault the soldiers on top, but it turned out that simply running your soldiers into reinforced enemy defensive positions was a bad and costly idea. Not dismayed by the failed offensive, they attacked again, and again, and failed each time. Eventually realizing that their enemy's fortifications were too impressive to overcome with sheer brute force, the invaders then tried a new strategy talking smack about the defenders to try to bait them out of their fort. The Sakalava mercenaries hurled insults at their foes, and while the specific insults have been lost to time, apparently they were uh, pretty personal, because they succeeded in goading out the leader of the garrison. The commanding officer, Ambuhitrasa, hopped over the earthworks and demanded that one of the Sakalava who had been insulting him meet him in single combat. Now, as we get into this story, it's important to note that the Sakalav generally had a reputation for being considerably taller than their Marina counterparts. It's a detail that is referenced occasionally in Marina histories, and pretty much ubiquitous in the logs of European merchants who visited the island in this time. This shouldn't be too surprising either, since the semi-nomadic Sakalav are usually noted as eating a nutritious diet containing a great deal of protein, compared to the carb-heavy diets of the Marina. With that said... When the defender slid down the fortifications with only an iron spade in hand, he was greeted by an absolutely towering Sakalava soldier. This Sakalava dwarfed the other Sakalava, who dwarfed the leader of the garrison. So basically, while the source doesn't give any precise numerical measurements, we are meant to assume that this guy was tall. So the giant of a man approached his Marina challenger holding a musket. With the battle having devolved from a chaotic assault into a one-on-one -on -one duel, soldiers and civilians alike began to gather around the fight like schoolchildren around a recess scrap. A crowd of local women showed up too, and started chanting encouragement to the Marina fighter. The soldier raised his spade high, and charged at his gargantuan foe. As the giant raised his musket, 
he fired a single shot which narrowly missed his opponent's head. With a swift thwack to the head, the Sakalava giant stumbled and fell to the ground. Taken aback by this David versus Goliath style upset that had occurred just before them, the Sakalav and Amboimanga soldiers hesitated, backed away slowly, and then started to retreat. Meanwhile, the soldiers of Antananarifu, encouraged by their victory, pursued their retreating enemies for as long as they could, inflicting deadly casualties. The siege of Amboitrasa had devolved into a bloody failure. As the thoroughly defeated armies of the north trudged back to Amboimanga, the Sakalava mercenaries figured that eh, they might as well get something out of this misadventure, and began brutally pillaging the country which had hired them, before eventually heading back home. Rakoto Mafu had turned himself into a tributary, lost hundreds of his own soldiers, and saw his kingdom's countryside looted, and in return, he received nothing. For the foreseeable future, the dream of a reunited Imerina was dashed. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. The coming decades in the mid-18th century would prove to be the most miserable yet seen in Merina history. A few years after the failed attack on Ambohitrasa, a series of droughts hit Merina. Fortunately, these droughts were not as serious as those which had hit the region during the reign of Andrea Massina Falona. Unfortunately, the lack of a centralized response plan greatly exacerbated the problem. With no access to large labor convoys, Merina kings had no ability to dig out new alternative waterways or expand existing farms. As community rice stores went dry and famine began to set in, the areas less severely affected were entirely unable or unwilling to share their yields. And when you consider the circumstances of the time, you can't really blame them. The fiefs of Imerina were now locked in an intermittent war with each other which would last decades, with neighbor turning on neighbor and brother on brother. This conflict went much deeper than the wars between the heirs of Andrea Massina Falona. Each prince's rump state was quite weak, especially in the aftermath of their destructive failed wars, with each prince holding little authority outside of the immediate vicinities of their capital. So, disputes between Demes or Andreana landholders, which had once been able to be resolved with peaceful arbitration, now demanded violent resolution. So, alongside the large wars between the rump states, Dozens of small-scale local wars were waged in the countryside at any given moment. Besides the obvious social atomization that arises from this circumstance, traveling between communities in Imerina was also becoming increasingly dangerous. Keep in mind that, now that Rakotomafu and his kingdom were de facto tributaries of the Sakalav, they would have to meet demands to keep their new overlords satisfied. Slavery, of course, had been a present but relatively minor institution in the highlands to this point. However, this period of political chaos and economic downturn saw Merina communities begin to depend more and more on the growing industry of enslavement. Two growing sources of demand for enslaved workers further fueled the practice of slave trading. To the east, the island of Mauritius had long been a backwater Dutch colony. 
the Dutch had used the island almost exclusively as a repair hub for ships crossing from Europe to their major colonies in Indonesia. In the early 18th century, though, the French East India Company seized ownership of the largely abandoned island. Unlike the Dutch, the French truly sought to turn the island into a profitable sugar plantation. The sugar industry, known for its high profit margins and horrible worker conditions, relied on enslaved labor. To supply enslaved labor for the island, the French turned to multiple sources, with the Sakhalav kingdoms becoming one of their most crucial sellers. Meanwhile, on mainland Africa, the Swahili coast was developing its own plantation economy. The area, which was under the de facto rule of the Sultan of Oman, was controlled by an Afro-Arab class of planters, who similarly relied on enslaved labor to work their own valuable spice plantations. Many of these enslaved workers had been purchased in Malgasy ports. Not only did Sakalava raiders themselves plunder Holfa and other communities, enslaving those who survived their attacks, but the Merina kingdoms were also obliged to raid on their behalf to meet tribute obligations. And yes, I did say kingdoms, plural. Soon after Ambohimanga had submitted to Sakalava tributary status, the king of Antanarifu did the same. Less overtly terrifying, but perhaps even deadlier than the outbreak of widespread slave trading, was the rise of cattle raiding. While enslaved workers represented part of the tribute obligations laid on the Merina, the majority of tribute obligations came in the form of cattle. To meet these steep demands, many Hofa communities began the practice of raiding nearby villages and stealing their cattle, worsening the already bad famine conditions wherever they went. These raided communities, struggling to make ends meet, themselves had to turn to raiding to survive. The result was an ever-escalating cycle of violence and criminality, leading to a dramatic downturn, both in the economy of Imerina and the living conditions of its people. Now, the princes of Imerina were not dumb. They were far from oblivious to the problems with these worsening conditions, and far from passive in their efforts to reverse the problem. Rakotomafu, in particular, resorted to some radical reforms to try to steer his fiefdom away from this direction of slave trading and towards a degree of stability. The most noteworthy of these reforms was an effort to try to stimulate trade between Imerina and foreign merchants with the establishment of a royal mint. The history of coinage on Madagascar is an interesting and complicated one. While rarely used in domestic day-to-day -day trading, coins were a staple of international trade in Madagascar by the 11th century AD at the latest. At first, Malagasy rulers typically used silver coins minted in Yemen, and in later eras they would also use silver and copper coins minted from Kilwa in modern-day Tanzania, since these coins were a plentiful source of currency accepted by merchants of multiple countries. Some Malgasy nations, particularly the Antemoro of the far south, even started minting their own versions of these coins during this period. As European merchants became a more integral part of the Indian Ocean trading network, new coins began to proliferate in Malgasy hands. The most commonplace of these coins was the Spanish Real de Aucho, silver coins which were each worth eight Spanish reales, better known in English by their colloquial name, Pieces of Eight. These coins were the most common and widely accepted means of exchange throughout not only the Indian Ocean, but really the entire world. Whether you were Malgasy, Portuguese, Indian, Swahili, Omani, Malaysian, or French, each culture used and valued the Real de Ocho. For a long time, these coins were especially treasured by Malgasy traders because they gave them an edge in transactions. You see, it was common knowledge among the Malgasy that when dealing with European merchants, 
Malagasy merchants consistently received better deals when trading in coins rather than bartering. The European colonies on nearby islands in the Indian Ocean were very, very specialized for plantation labor, and therefore very dependent on Malagasy labor and food. In order to pay for the requisite food and enslaved labor, these islands constantly imported large sums of coinage, most of which would end up in Malagasy coffers. Since these coins were also accepted by other nearby people, the Malagasy merchants could leverage European dependence to fuel their masquerine colonies to receive preferential exchange rates for coinage when it came to goods and services. Then, Malagasy merchants could use these coins at their original value when dealing with Swahili, Indian, or Omani merchants. Think of it as if you were going on vacation and exchanging money, except that you, and only you, were arbitrarily given a better exchange rate than everyone else, and how that would give you an obvious advantage when purchasing items. Bartering, on the other hand, more closely matched a fair value for the commodities traded, since the lack of easily converted stored value of the goods Europeans bartered with, like rum, gunpowder, and finished products, mitigated the monetary advantage gained by using coins. Both European and Malagasy merchants were aware of this fact, so typically any economic interaction between a European and Malagasy merchant was preempted by two or more hours of argument over whether to use coins or bartering, with the winner of the argument receiving the better deal. So if you were confused by that whole spiel, and I wouldn't blame you, the point is that for the Malagasy, trading with coins was more valuable than bartering. Rakotomafo, therefore, had an idea to try to revive his kingdom's economy. What if, in order to secure better deals in trading, Ambohimanga started minting their own pieces of eight? After all, if merchants from Ambohimanga had large supplies of coins, then they would always have the ability to trade in coins. With this plan in mind, the prince of Ambohimanga ordered the opening of Imerina's first mint. The coin mint opened in the mid-18th century, mining silver and pumping out thousands of counterfeit pieces of eight. While the plan seemed promising at first, the mint fell into immediate struggles and closed after just a few years. And honestly, it shouldn't surprise you too much that it's failed. The failure of Rakotomafo's mint becomes pretty obvious when you consider why Spanish pieces of eight were so valuable to the Malagasy in the first place. Remember, because of their dependence on the Mauritius colony on Malagasy trade, Malagasy merchants were trading for and with pieces of eights below or above their typical market value, respectively. The European merchants were able to take a loss in terms of labor and food because, well, they were running an absurdly profitable sugar-producing colony. Compare that to what was going on at the mint in Ambohimanga. Labor was being exploited to mine silver and then minted into a silver coin. The coin was worth the value of the silver that it was minted on and the labor used to extract it. That is to say, it has the same value as a normal piece of eight. The pieces of eight that the French on Mauritius were selling were so valuable because they were traded to the Malgasi at a loss. While the mint probably did succeed in doing what most mints do, that is, increase the supply of currency available and therefore increase liquidity, it didn't actually generate additional economic value. So ironically, the Ambohimanga mint wasn't a total failure, it just wasn't the savior of his national economy like Rakotomafo expected it to be. Rakotomafo would remain king of Amboimanga for the next few decades. Of all kings we've addressed so far in Merina history, he's certainly one of the most confounding. While his rule was undoubtedly disastrous, it's not super clear how much of the disaster can really be attributed to him. 
It's not like he didn't try to right the ship. It's just that most of his reforms and policies would end up, if not exacerbating, then at the very least not solving pre-existing problems. The decision to submit to informal Sakhalev dominance in particular seems like a particularly short-sighted decision, with some nasty consequences down the road. But even then, it's hard to blame him for taking it. Had his gambit with Sakhalev mercenaries succeeded, and Antananarivo was recaptured and the Merina reunited, then his legacy would be of perhaps the greatest ruler Imerina had yet seen. But, well, that just isn't how it worked out. Instead, Imerina would remain disunited and in a state of turmoil for the next generation. But before you succumb to the undeniable gloominess of the forecast, there is a burst of sunlight on the horizon. A new heroic figure will emerge to fulfill the promises of his forefathers, and secure the legacy that slipped from Rakhal Domafo's hands as one of Imerina's most revered rulers in history. Join us next week as we meet the man who will reunite Imerina and put an end to this chaotic period of war and strife. The most famous king in Merina history, Andrianam Poini Merina. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Dimitri, Emmanuel Saudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebalabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyuno Lrontimain, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rasan Firgiani, and Ni T, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.